Good evening, March Madmen listeners. This is part two of our deep dive into The Shining. Let's go get lost in the maze, shall we? Well, I do enjoy and enjoy by myself, but tonight I am in the Hot Bullet Double IPA, and I'm going to open one right now. Ah, yes. What a, what a refreshing sound. Uh, Vic, did you reprovision? Are you, uh, what are you drinking, if anything? I did. I, unfortunately, I, I very selfishly and, and thoughtlessly opened and poured in the kitchen, uh, and I apologize to my listeners for that. I know how much they, they appreciate the, the sound of the can opening in this, this lovely audio format, but I'm drinking a Garage Brewing Triple. Uh, it's a, a Southern California brewery, and uh, I quite like it. Very nice, very nice. I don't think I've heard of them. They have a they have a stand at Stater Brothers, and I've I've actually had it once or twice before. But it's it, not only is it very good, but compared to a lot of the sort of higher end uh, Belgian triples, it's it's very affordable. So check checks a couple boxes there. Awesome, sign me up. Well, you know what's really affordable? It's ghost liquor that they give you at the bar of the Overlook Hotel because your credit is good here, Mr. Torrance, and uh, I, Mr. Wheat and Mr. Eckersley. I, I see what you did there, John. That's good. Yeah. <laughs> Let's circle back, I think, more or less because we are jumping around a ton in our reading of, of this movie because we've covered it so many times. We're, we're more or less at the point where Wendy comes running in and tells Jack that Danny went into one of the bedrooms, the door was open, he saw this crazy woman in the bathtub, and she tried to strangle him. Now, I think this definitely is an interesting thing to think about, because we don't actually, of course, see what happened to Danny in that room. One of the big questions for me here is what exactly does she do to Danny? I mean, yes, Wendy says strangles him. We see the marks. We see the, you know, torn sweater. She she roughs him up for sure. But, I mean, where the questions arise is does she release him? Does he get away due to his own resourcefulness? Does Tony intervene somehow? Like, there are missing pieces that it's kind of interesting to speculate about. And why not show us? Like, this is something that, you know, and this is the choice you get to make as, like, a a filmmaker or or a writer. I find it very interesting when a movie chooses to give you someone's point of view or perspective or experience selectively like only doing it whenever it suits you as the as the filmmaker we've been allowed to see like what danny gets to see for the most part so why are we kept in the dark here it's an interesting question there rich and uh, one of the theories of course about the movie whether or not kubrick intended this to be vague because it's possible that Jack did it, or at least like he wants to play some games with the possibility that in some way this is a shared delusion and we never really get Danny's end of it actually. But is it possible, I guess is what I would pose to you guys, because that is a, a reading that I've, I've read is that, that Jack does it to Danny, not, not the woman at all. Isn't Jack asleep though on his, on his desk? 
Yeah. Well, when she, when she brings him in, yeah. Yeah. Like when she brings him in, he's, he, he's just been dreaming essentially about hurting his family. This scene is where, where we're picking up here is, is where Danny apparently has told Wendy after the fact, you know, what happened. And it wasn't that my dad hurt me. It was that this, this woman in the room hurt, yeah. hurt me. Right. So that's the, I'm just saying it's, I, I feel like, uh, and I could be wrong, but like, it seems like it, we know where Jack was when Danny goes into room two, three, seven, because we see him when he comes out. So it seems unlikely that, but my other question is Halloran has told Danny that the, the, the things that he's going to see are like pictures in a book. Is this the first time in the film when they cease to be pictures in a book and become something tangible enough to actually cause physical damage? Assuming, and I'm with you, Vic, I I think that you could argue, well, maybe Danny was wandering around for a while and Jack went and fell asleep and he thinks he dreamed it, but in reality he did it. I mean, you could, you could, stretch things but I'm, yeah. I'm with you in your in, in the reading here that that yeah she did it and, and these things do have a tangible ability to affect the reality as we and again this is i think we talked about it you know several episodes ago this is also something that people have theories about but i think and i think we all agree that when grady opens the door and Jack is locked in the in the storeroom, and Grady releases him. That is definitive proof of a physical interaction of these ghosts with with reality, with objects, a tangible touch that they have. So I, I think that you add those things together, and I think we can say that yeah, these spirits can physically affect objects and people. You know, the other question that I that I think is raised by this scene is. Once the hotel begins to manifest these kinds of physical abilities, right? Like this woman was capable of strangling Danny enough that she was able to cause sort of bruises on him, but she doesn't kill him. Now, maybe he gets away or whatever, but it still seems like what the hotel is really interested in is not just Danny's death, but that they, management, wants the family to come apart. They want Jack to do it. They want that. There's something in the, the, the sort of torment, the disillusion of this family that seems meaningful to them, which I would guess, and I, and I sort of interpret it this way because we talked a little bit about the timing of it all, the way that everything comes together when, when Danny finally comes down, uh, that, that this is deliberate, that this is, this is the outcome they are seeking. So I, I don't know. I, I do feel like there are some some – interesting subtle sort of colorations to they, they give you some insight into the hotel itself and the whatever the the spirits beings entities the things that are in there actually the phrase that i wrote down is the ambiguities are beautiful in this movie and i think that's really true i think they're being forced to gain strength over the course of this i think that there's an argument that they just don't have the power at the beginning and so they need this human vessel to to feed them in a sense. And that's part of the reason why I was willing to write off that question I brought up earlier about why is it that Wendy and, and Jack can actually see these things at the end when we're we're introduced to the story as though only Danny should be able to to see the 
you know, the, the various like specters of this hotel. And I think it's because it's feeding off them to some extent. Um, and so it could be that it doesn't have the power quite yet. And, and to your point, Vic, it could be that, yes, it's, it's strategy is to do this to, to incite violence because it's feeding off that violence to gain strength. Well, yeah, I mean, I think that the sort of psychic trauma that is left by these murders, I mean, any murder, right? But especially, my God, you know, parents killing their their children, there's something incredibly powerful about that. And they do seem to be kind of stage managing that with Grady and with Jack. I mean, it would be very easy in how many of these, I think, horror movies in general, but maybe even ghost movies to a degree – play with the idea of accidents or, you know, oh, well, let's lure little Timmy to climb that ladder and poor Timmy fell off the roof of the Overlook and that's how he died. Or, like, they could so easily go that route if that's all they wanted was a body count, then it wouldn't even have to look like murders necessarily. But, like, this this hotel really seems clearly about breaking down its inhabitants' sanities and fucking with their heads until they see terrible things and do terrible things. And I definitely think there's a correlation between the the weakness and vulnerability of, of the people and how it that becomes more and more pronounced and they they lose their their defenses and their often their sort of moral boundaries right along with what happened with the ghosts. And I think that it seems to empower, I do, I do get the sense of a a battery being charged and that's a good sort of segue to something that I hesitate to really call canon as it relates to this movie, because this movie is its own thing. It's an amalgamation of Stephen King, Diane Johnson and Stanley Kubrick. And with all due respect to the great Stephen King, even though he wrote a novel the, this novel, The Shining, and then he wrote another novel, Dr. Sleep, and then they made a movie, Dr. Sleep, which very much suggests that the people with The Shining essentially are just vessels of energy that, that various entities, including the ghosts in the hotel, want to just drain of that energy. I'm not necessarily feeling handcuffed to reading this movie made in 1980 that way. The reading of it the it just even as you're saying this is reminding me of is the uh, session nine, like the, the idea of like the, the living in the weak and wounded, like it feels like it is breaking them down because the more holes that are punctured in their humanity, the more of a foothold it has in this universe. Yeah, totally agree. Let's move along. We have the scenes of Scatman Crothers, Chef Halloran in his impeccably decorated Miami, he's definitely in Florida, apartment, as he is watching the news and chilling out, and he gets this, you know, traumatic SOS call from Danny in the Overlook, this psychic uh, plea for help. And, of course, that triggers his lengthy journey, which we have touched on (laughs) several times, uh, that really takes forever but um any any thoughts about the idea that danny can reach out to halloran like that is not something the hotel would would like like they would stop him if they could 
but Danny is able to do that, and Halloran is is able to receive it. I think it speaks to what up to how powerful the shine is in Danny. Yeah, right. That he's able to reach all the way to Florida because it's not like Halloran said to him, "Hey, if you get into any trouble, like just use your shine." Right. Uh, <laughs> so, so I think that even Halloran is probably surprised to get it, and is surprised that that's how powerful Danny is. And it's intercut with sort of a POV shot of room 237 as maybe this is Danny, uh, his memory of when he ventured in, even though the height is, is tall. It's not, it's not the height. It's actually, no, I, I'm, see, I'm watching this right now and I'm forgetting this must be Jack's perspective because it's at his height. And then it's revealed when a hand presses the door. And of course, it's it's actually Jack, but it's slyly intercut with Danny's uh, SOS to Halloran. So that's that's kind of an interesting trick. But I, I also wanted to just point out that the carpet in her room—I mean, I have never seen ugly and carpet, cu- ugly and gaudy carpeting like that outside of Vegas. And when I say Vegas, I'm talking like Circus Circus or something, like one of the shittier casino hotels. <laughs> Now, John, we may take this podcast on the road someday, so let's not start talking shit about Las Vegas hotels, all right? Circus Circus might be our audience. (laughs) Vic, I love how you're always thinking long-term about our brand, man. I appreciate that. (laughs) So this is – go ahead, Vic. Uh, Rich. I'm just curious while while we're in this section, was there anything in the Blu-ray commentary regarding the the – uh, production design of Halloran's uh, Florida bungalow. I did watch it. it. It mentioned, and it was Stanley Kubrick who who came up with that. He just had that that vision, huh? Yep. Yep. <laughs> All right. It, it was. Just, it, it's so. It's. Uh, it has such a striking impression to it. It's a very bold statement about that character. I can't help but wonder, like, why? Like, what? to what extent does that further or deepen the character? What would you even call, like, what, like, the picture hanging above the television says about his character? Tasteful, Rich. That's what it tells me. It's a man who has, who has, who has taste yeah, in I, art. Yeah. Crass. There's, there's a crass side of, a, of Halloran. Well... Um, I, I think I can, like, look back 20 years, 30 years, 40 years of this guy's history, and he's right now, he's a charmer, he's eloquent, he's gregarious, he's outgoing. I think the the solution or the answer to that question is that in this guy's heyday, he was quite a ladies' man. He he was he he was a libidinous dude. Is how I'm going to put that. <laughs> still still single. I think they're trying to they yeah. definitely vibe of still single. Right, and probably never married too. I would I would venture to say based on this. Yeah, <laughs> he's he's never been married. Yeah, I think he had a lifestyle and and. He enjoyed the hell out of it, and now he's an old man, and, and he still sort of has his records. Like, there's there's a big stack of vinyl records surrounding him, and uh, it, it looks like a hotel room, though. Is that yeah, possible? Yeah, it, it has the weird vibe of a, of a rental, despite the fact that it seems very lived in. 
Do you think Halloran used The Shining to seduce women? Maybe. That, is that you like what? what he was doing in the 60s? Yeah, I would buy that, Vic. That is a project I'd like to see. It's an extremely austere decor. Like, this doesn't look like a place that a guy has lived in for 50 years. It it really does look like a hotel room with a very specific aesthetic. It, it's a little strange and surreal. I, I'm not sure I totally buy the whole thing, but, I mean, I do kind of buy my psychological profile of Halloran. It, it could hold water. Interesting questions. So... Let's talk about the woman in the bathtub, because that's kind of where we are. And I did have notes that I want to throw out there. This time watching it um, under the influence of a delicious edible, I really thought about her backstory, who she was in life, and what this hotel meant to her over a period of decades. It was really interesting thinking about this Scandinavian woman who came here by jet, because that's it's all about the jet set, right? And obviously this place is remote. You know, she was probably originally from another country, even brandishing the privilege of wealth. She was coming here for so many years that she would ultimately die here alone. And I also thought about what it meant to die alone at an advanced age in her case, certainly, but with no one left to care about her to an extent, to the extent that her body would lie in that tub for days kind of makes you wonder about the quality of maid service in this hotel. But um, putting plausibility questions aside, she, she does seem like a very sad figure. Not a tragic one, as you do get the clear sense that she's alone for a reason, maybe more so than Halloran. This is as flawed and potentially evil of a woman as anyone we meet in this hotel. But what a strange life. To go from the flower of youth, perhaps a trophy wife brought here originally, to inheriting wealth, one presumes, in the early to mid-20th century, outliving her husband and continuing to return here until the day that she died. I'm just, like, reading into this from a 20th century perspective. But the trappings of wealth were clearly all she had left at the point that she died. And maybe there was even a reason the maids didn't bother her. Maybe it was a really bad idea to bother this woman. You did not go in there to check on this woman until you absolutely had to. I buy that. However, the odd thing about this whole thing is that nothing we see specifically in terms of visuals or, you know, there's no discussion of who she was in life or death. We don't really get a sense of large or even any specific menace to her in the sense that we don't get that she was a murderer, that she was a black widow. I think it would make sense, perhaps, that she she might have been a black widow. It could be implied in her backstory that I just sort of sketched out, like how maybe maybe she didn't just outlive her husband or husbands. But obviously this particular hotel room, room 237, has an outsized importance in the novel and in the movie. And as the occupant of that room... So does she, right? But we never really find out, you know, oh, well, she was a child murderer or she did X, Y, or Z. Like, there's no, there's there's precious little mythology associated with her. So, well, what do you guys make of it? I found myself thinking that, especially as you were talking, that maybe she isn't Scandinavian, but maybe there's something more Eastern European about her. Sort of a trophy wife, maybe married to some sort of, I don't know, New York real estate developer who <laughs> cheated on her with a porn star and 
And then she murdered him, and yeah, and then she died alone in a bathtub in Colorado. I don't know. I, the, that that story sort of just sort of fell into place. Sort of an alternate history of what yeah. might have happened. <laughs> Would the country be better off? <laughs> <laughs> no, but I, mean, I think those are all very interesting things. I did not. So uh, it's interesting. My impression of the ghostly form of her was more about the the decay of the body than that she had aged terribly. Although, I mean, that's it's such a visceral scene that it's hard to sort of parse through in such logical terms. So I sort of want to rewatch it now and go, oh, is it is it that she is both old and decomposed, or is it just uh, the, the result of having lain in the water for so long? Oh, Rich, come on, help us out. She's old, isn't she? I, I mean, I definitely interpret this as the... I guess like the what I think of as being the classical interpretation of a of a witch, which is that she is old and decomposed. I didn't necessarily like attribute the water specifically as the as the reason for the de- decomposition, but but I mean obviously that that interpretation makes a lot of sense. I never interpreted the, the Scandinavian you know model component of her to ever be an actual representation of her. And more just a form that she takes, that her native form is this this older decomposing form, and that the Scandinavian is just sort of a specter that she wears. All of was, the witch, the movie The Witch. Yeah, uh, I mean, again, that 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 is my interpretation of it, and that's all I really have to go off of because, as you pointed out, they never really give you any any details. It's hard to argue whether it's a good thing or a bad thing. The mystery of it is kind of kind of refreshing. And obviously it does enough to pique the imagination. I'm just but- connecting dots, you know, in the sense that Ullman is talking about the jet set and all the best people. And one of the whole themes of this movie from the perspective of its its ghost or the depiction of the ghosts is that these are decadent people who come here to party and get away with doing anything that they want. Like it's a very libidinous, uh, decadent place, um, Dionysian parties, right? That's the vibe that you get. So, you know, I personally, I don't think like an 85 year old woman would, would come out here. Um, I, unless like she'd been coming out here since she was young. Also, by the way, I think when I look at the, it's not, you can't call it wounds, but when you look at these areas of her body, it almost looks like, uh, when she come, you know, when she's dead, of course, uh, it almost looks like bed sores or something. It's the kind of thing you associate, I think, with a body that has rigor mortis and it's lying in one position for such a long time that the, the sort of the flesh chafes away in you know in her shoulder blades and her butt or you know the places that were in contact with the um, with the bathtub and like the the just the dead flesh just kind of is chafed away as the water sort of floats her around for a few days that that it, it to me really seems like she's she's decomposing in such specific spots it really looks like the product of having laid in a bathtub for a few days well i would also ask the question you know halloran doesn't steer danny away from any other spot only room 237 does he really sternly say stay out of there and I wonder if what backstory justifies that. Exactly. There is something to be said for the fact that room 237 is where Danny gets strangled. It's where the hotel has the power to really do that. 
that it's to manifest in a way that it can that it can actually hurt him at least for the first the first time. But this feels like a free agent in a sense because the hotel is all about um, trying to seduce Jack, and this is just a trick or treat. You know, like what happens to Jack in this in this room? That's true. But so why was Halloran so insistent? What is the what is so sinister in room 237 that it is separate from that is it is worth calling out outside the rest of I mean I think it's sinister but I don't, I don't think it's the management rich no it's it's, it's as far as Halloran is concerned he only singles it out because Danny singles it out Danny asks him about room 237 so he's given the opportunity to react specifically to to that but I do agree with you, Vic, that there's something about – it does seem like 237 is meant to be the heart of this thing. And I mean I don't know. There, there is an alternate you know, read on this story where it's like is that, that woman in 237, did she you – know, at, at some point, this energy had to be channeled, right? It can't just be like people did debaucherous things and then one day suddenly it was, it was haunted. Someone needed to convert that energy into a dark force at some point. And so are we being given a glimpse of someone who was the link to the the, the dark arts, for, for lack of a, a better term? Like, who is it that tapped into whatever turned this place into a place of debauchery to a place of evil? Well, and was it someone who had a really powerful shine to them? Ooh, like her? Exactly. Yeah. Um, I forget, by the way, but in the commentary, like, she had a name, and, like, she's Mrs. Something or Other, which I think contributed to my um, backstory that I gave her. And, yeah, that, like, on the call sheet, the old lady was called Mrs. Something, and I'm sorry, you know, I... Drump. Drump. (laughs) Right. Right. But... Do they have the same name? The, The young woman and the old woman? That's a good question. I don't know. I don't know. It would be interesting to look at the script for that kind of subtlety. But I, I think that we're, we're all asking the right questions. We just don't have answers. I will say that I, I still I hold pretty firm to the concept that she does not seem like the VP of operations of management, meaning I, I don't think that she is either the the leader of the the, the sort of group that uh grady is speaking for like the implied kind of administration of of evil here i i think that very clearly i get the sense especially from the way she just kind of punks jack here that that she is just an anarchic force and she for whatever reason maybe psychic potential she has the shine she had the shine or whatever but she's she's a very strong force but I've always had the feeling, and I still do, that she's she's an independent. And I think that I think of the hotel as a loose conglomeration of spirits, and we never really see, which I think is kind of a classical, almost Lovecraftian thing. We never really get to meet the management. The only face of management or ownership, or however you want to think of it, you know, the larger organizing principles uh, that are that are making all this happen. It is Grady because he's he's the flunky that that speaks for them and and maybe to an extent the bartender. There's no meeting with the CEO here, and she is certainly not it. That's just my reading, but I feel strongly about it. 
I do like that the, they're reading like essentially frames this as like a corporate think tank of evil. But it's like a it's, loose a loose conglomeration of spirits, but but something is even pulling their strings. I'm curious how you think it connects. I don't know if you if you buy into this part of the story, but in Doctor Sleep when um when Danny goes back and and Jack is the bartender, like how does that fit in? Yeah, I mean that's really Interesting. I mean, I almost feel like it would make so much sense for us if we weren't doing this whole other thing to like now go watch Dr. Sleep and sort of see, you know, what we like and what it builds on and what kind of feels like taking this in, in the wrong direction. I, I have some clarity. We've talked about this movie obviously several times. When we get to the end, I do have a stronger feeling about Jack's, what, what, what it means for Jack to keep showing up in this hotel, but I want to hold off on it. Also, Doctor Sleep bonus episode. Just saying. Yeah, yeah. Down down the road, maybe in between seasons. God, who wouldn't take another opportunity to rehash The Shining? <laughs> I would. <laughs> and Mike Flanagan. Don't forget that it's bringing together yeah. two, two subjects that we have really, really covered well. About eighteen hours of this podcast, uh, yeah. just just in the last year. So any other thoughts about this scene specifically? I, I think we we would be doing ourselves a disservice not to touch on the simple infidelity that it represents in terms of Jack jumping on this opportunity. We haven't really up to this point seen any kind of desire from him uh, for other women uh, or other men. and it, it. But this is really where he's just like, oh, the hotel is rewarding me now. And I get to have this guilt-free escape. And what a, what, a, what a dream come true it must appear to be for him from that perspective. He certainly doesn't seem to have any, like, hesitation. He doesn't seem to think much of it either way. Like, not, not a ton of hesitation, but also not a ton of elation either. It's kind of like he just walks in. He obviously feels sort of pleasantly surprised to find this naked woman. Uh, stepping out of a bath. No, I disagree. Yeah. I, I, I just looked at it. His, his eyes light up, dude. That's a, like I said, pleasantly surprised. It's not perfunctory, is all I'm saying. He, he's he's eager. I, that's all I can tell you. But he's hammered too. Yeah, yeah. He's been he's been drinking now. It might be ghost liquor, but I assume that it still has some kind of effect. Yeah, he, he's not going through the motions, is what I'm saying. Yeah, I do have a, a ghost liquor question, and I don't want to, to derail your your question, John, but. But sure, maybe it feeds into that. Is that uh, since you have the cut pulled up? I did have a question to the flag to go back and check and didn't check. Is that when Wendy approaches him at the bar, we see that, that Lloyd is not there and, and the bar is empty when, when Wendy comes up. But Jack does seem to still be holding a drink on the edge of, at the edge of the shot when Wendy approaches him. Oh, shoot. Yeah, we left that scene behind. Um, I could back it up. But, uh, yeah, that's a really interesting – that's a meaningful observation. Um, but just go, just going to that question of, like, is he actually – you know, is he – is, is he merely under the house's influence or is there some sort of, you know, conflation of, like, reality and, and fantasy at this point for, for him in terms of the, the alcohol? But I don't, I don't know. I don't I'm, know the necessary – feeds into that one way or another i'm gonna guess that it's ambiguous and you don't clearly see he has a drink or he doesn't have a drink but i will go back and check the moment when he is kissing her 
and it slowly dawns on him that there's something am- amiss is really pretty, pretty awesome. And it, I can't really de- describe it or do it justice, but I wonder how many takes they did. You know, just the sort of progression. Do you realize right away that, that she's a rotting corpse now? Is it kind of like, hmm, this is so- something's a little less sexy now. I wonder what it is. And it, you know, you kind of gradually, like, before he even opens his eyes, he's like, is her mouth different? I mean, I just, it, it's really funny because it, it takes a while in the cut that they use before he, he kind of like, he, he clearly is sort of checking out or losing interest. And then he opens his eyes and he sees, oh shit. Yeah, this is wrong. The physicality, the, the thing that he felt when he kissed her did not line up with what he was seeing. Yeah. And so it was that moment of connecting that the, the physiology was different than the appearance. I was just wondering, what would the hotel... Oh, shit. Vic? Did you just swallow Vic? Yeah. <laughs> the hotel took Vic. All right, am I back? <laughs> yes. Damn it. All right. What would have happened if, if... What would the hotel have done if Jack had kind of realized what was happening and he sort of pulls back and, and sees this decrepit corpse of a woman... And then it's like, eh? It just goes back in and keeps kissing her. (laughs) (laughs) Tail is tail, right? It's still better than my wife. (laughs) It's still strange. (laughs) Wouldn't it be funny if he went, he shrugged and said, "Eh, I've done worse. Yeah. (laughs) You know, I've woken up next to worse things. The woman's reaction, uh, sorry, this is jumping off of something that you said just a moment ago, John, I I'm, apologize. I'm blanking what it is, but, but the fact that the woman, uh, then laughs at him makes her spirit and like attitude kind of an outlier in this, in this collection of ghosts. Like it is enjoying the fact that he realizes what she is and is, and is sort of like relishing and, and tormenting in the fact it's, it's the most like classical ghost of anything in this movie. Um, and then it's, it's enjoying the haunt. Yeah, exactly. It, it's an anarchic spirit. Like the old lady is delighted to have tricked him, you know, and she, she knows she's a rotting corpse of an 80 year old woman and she just got him to do that. And she just seems in a, in a somewhat, you know, deranged form of juvenilia. She just got this guy with her childish prank and she, she loves it. And she's, she's just mocking. It's such a mocking cackle. She's following him, but not with like real, like I'm going to eat your face kind of intent. Just, just, she's just enjoying her, her, her laugh, you know, that she, that she tricked him. But it's also pushing Jack toward this breaking point. We are after this, well, you know, not far after this, when Jack has a base, you know, is, is going to take Wendy's baseball bat and bash her brains in. And that's pretty far from 20 minutes earlier in the movie. Oh, for sure. Well, it's interesting because immediately after this, Jack seems like really reasonable and he's, he's manipulating Wendy with his explanations and his demeanor seems like really 
composed, and I think even a remotely alert audience member will see the insincerity, but he's acting, quote-unquote, normal, as he tells her, I didn't see one goddamn thing. He says, nobody, nothing was in the room. You know, he asks, how is he? And she says, he's still asleep. He's like, oh, good. You know, so he's not acting like a, you know, gibbering madman. And he goes, I'm sure he'll be himself again in the morning. So he has a brief sort of, quote-unquote, return to sanity. But I think we know that it's an, it's an a- act, right? Well, but, sure. And, and, and why does he – so he's – I mean he's consciously lying to her, right? I mean it sounds like your interpretation is maybe he's not consciously lying to her? No, no. I mean I, I, think, I, I think he is consciously lying. I think it's an act. Yeah, I think he's, he's putting on this front where he's trying to tell her what she will believe but that will get her to do what he wants. And as he says, you know, I think he did it to himself – and he's all he's all has this fake sincerity, but he knows. But, like, but but why do you think that is? I mean, he, we haven't gotten to the point where right. yet yeah, he's made a pact with the with the evil, so to speak, to take care of them. So why is he pretending that nothing's happening? Why isn't he as freaked out as, as anyone else? Well, that is one of the interesting questions because, like, this is coming off the heels of he he could feel burned by the hotel. He, he has this sort of sense of loyalty to this job and to this institution, even as a sort of supernatural escape from the responsibilities of being a man and a parent and a, and a, and a husband. Um, but at the same time, you know, he can justify the responsibilities that the hotel demands of him. And it just totally fucked him over in this last scene. You know, it was a complete bait and switch. Now, I don't know that he thinks of it as, you know, the way I do and where he's like, oh, well, that wasn't the management. You know, that was just an unruly guest. I, my deal with the, with the house, with the management is still good. But, yeah, I don't have an easy answer for that. But, I mean, I think he's very clearly, however, we might be missing some dots, you know, some con- connective tissue might not be here. But however he got there, despite the very disturbing experience he just had, now he's he's obviously very much back on on team overlook john you mentioned sort of when he sees this woman that maybe his thought process is that he's being rewarded somehow Mm -hmm. clearly he's not being rewarded that this is your your job's not done this isn't a reward for you get back to work asshole almost like i feel like there's an interpretation of that that that's what that's indicating is that management is not happy with him yeah Maybe I'm getting the chronology confused here, or maybe you guys are reading it a different way than I am. I don't feel like it's until the, the second gold room scene where where he meets um, Grady in the bathroom. At least Jack is not aware of having a, a deal with the Overlook Hotel until that scene, which hasn't happened yet. Up until this point, he's only talked to Lloyd, which has been strictly conversational. I guess that's true, but I think just, just- – from our knowledge of the story and where it's going, the hotel is pushing him in this direction. And whether or not they've verbalized it yet, it's you're not you're not in the, the management's good graces, whether you understand why you're not or not. Well and it's also you know it's I mean? never super literal deal with the devil. You know, like it's never if you do X we will give you Y. I mean there there's never that, but but somehow He's in. He's internalizing and interpreting. Well, now, John, 
Wait, I, I just want to jump in and say he literally says, I'd sell my soul for a glass of beer and then opens his eyes and Lloyd is there. Well, that yeah, that seems extremely literal, but 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 it's not most deal with the double quid pro quos are okay because that's a normal um expression like i would i would give my sell my soul for anything especially if you're an alcoholic like it, it's not that yes it seems on one level it's completely literal but i don't I mean, it's also a complete colloquialism and yeah there's no overt faustian bargain offered here okay and i will say that in the next scene the scene that i'm talking about the scene that we're at chronologically. He says, I could really write my own ticket if we left right now. Shoveling out driveways, work in a car wash, any of that appeal to you? So literal or not literal, he is he's interpreting this as this is the job that he can't fuck up and that he is he is going to do what his employers ask him to do. Because if he doesn't he, he, he doesn't like his other prospects outside of the situation. So whatever, he doesn't have to know the literal deal that he's being offered here. He already believes that whatever it is, he wants to be on this force, this entity, this group of entities, whatever. He wants to be on management's good side because he knows it's better than shoveling driveways. I mean, that's certainly a, a, a read on it. Um, I mean, it's I, very literal. I'm just reading you his dialogue, literally. In the scene. No, no, I, no I, I think I think you're correct. I think there's 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 also a there's also just a, a real world reading of what he's saying, which is he's he's not talking about the the management in a supernatural sense. He's talking about the management in terms of a a very corporeal sense of like he wants to hold down this this job as as caretaker. But I mean, mm-hmm. I I agree that obviously there is a there's a line that's being blurred here as to is he talking about serving this this flesh and blood human boss or is he talking about serving the the greater haunting right it it is blurry and i i think that's the right way to put it it's a blurred line but i mean i think that's important and one of my least favorite kinds of scripts to read and this used to be a popular contest entry was you know very literal deal with the devil scripts and i don't want to insult anyone i'm really sorry but generally the best screenwriters don't write literal deal with the devil scripts and i would not in a thousand years put this movie in anywhere close to that category so i I think it's perfectly fine that this movie does not ever get granular with any kind of arrangement between him and the hotel what the hotel really derives from him is is madness i agree i don't think jack ever ascertains that there will be some reward for me as long as i do this you know that this is a, a transactional relationship I just think he's pushed in this direction of insanity and madness, and it's driven by his sort of classist fear that he's going to wind up shoveling driveways. Yeah, he wants to he wants to do right by the hotel. He wants to kiss ass. He wants to suck up to the power. He wants to feel like he has an identity. We talked about last time. He even uses the expression "white man's burden," which I I thought I was going to Google and research the origins of that expression. But but he has this sort of feeling of being left behind. Or we we did definitely talk about he feels overeducated for his lot in life, and you know he deserves better. And this is kind of maybe a way he wants to become nouveau riche and hang with these uh, 
with the people he's always envied and, and been jealous of, right, and hated. Sure. I have a bunch of questions about that surrounding the later when Jack's in the freezer and, and talking to Grady, where it's the most clear that he is trying to impress them, but he's not quite clear on why. Yeah, let's definitely talk about that. But where we are, where we are, as I'm piloting through the the, the Blu-ray here, is he walks into the ballroom and he's greeted with a cordial hello, Mister Torrance. As he enters this, you know, there's a band and there's a full party with, I think there's over a hundred extras in this room, if I'm not mistaken. He enters and he's he's recognized and he's accepted here. He's he's not looked down on. He's not considered part of the help. And yeah, it's feeding his ego. It's appealing to exactly what he desires most. I think it's also a representation of what we talked about earlier, which is that it, it has it pushed him to a point where he has started to snap and he is starting to become an, an aggressor towards his family. And as a result, you have a transition from you know this scene in, in the gold room earlier where it's just him and, uh, and Lloyd – and now he comes in and suddenly the ghosts, the management, whatever you want to call them, seem to be operating at full capacity in this room. Like they are stronger. Their presence yeah. is much richer and deeper than it has been so far. And a lot of that is because Jack has delivered. Yeah, you can, you can understand a little bit Tom Hanks talking just to Wilson the volleyball. But if Tom Hanks is on the island and all of a sudden it's filled with talking sports equipment, you're like, oh. He's going off the fucking deep end. <laughs> That's right. Suddenly it's like, well, Wilson, what does our friend Davidson, the hockey puck, yeah. think? <laughs> Let's ask him. <laughs> here's, here's an interesting line here. As he's interacting with Lloyd, Lloyd is the personification of the best bartenders that Jack has, an, an amalgamation of the best bartenders that Jack has ever interacted with. Over time, there might have been a real Lloyd, but I think like the the idea of his sort of unjudgmental discretion and he only feeds the alcoholism. He he doesn't ever kick Jack out. He doesn't say no. Like that's sort of my impression of why he loves Lloyd is that Lloyd yeah. will always pour. You don't seduce an alcoholic with a Swedish woman in a bathtub. You seduce them with a great bartender. That's right. But when he says no charge for you, Mr. Torrance, like initially Torrance is skeptical. He says, Lloyd says, your money's no good here. And even at this somewhat late juncture in the film, Jack like is really sort of put off. And, and he says, Lloyd says, orders from the house. Even here, Jack kind of questions it. And he says, orders from the house. And he looks at him very suspiciously and he puts his wallet away. And uh, Lloyd says, drink up, Mr. Torrance. And then Jack still goes to the point of saying, I'm the kind of man likes to know who's buying their drinks, Lloyd. So as, as we were talking about earlier, Rich, yeah, like this, this definitely seems like Jack is not completely conscious uh, of certainly, you know, a deal that he's already made, right? Right. Correct me if I'm wrong. Lloyd's response is, it's not a matter that concerns you right now. Exactly. At least not at this point. Yeah. Which is well, it's but it's such a great like cryptic response. That's what I mean when I say the ambiguity in this movie is beautiful. Yes. Like those are those are perfect responses, and and it's it's Jack just needs to be put off a little bit, and then he'll he'll get back in line. 
Yeah, and he completely goes for it. And now, like, Jack is dancing. He doesn't have a care in the world. He's enjoying his drink. And now, this is somewhat of a... This was a, a stoner thought. But I, I noted that a woman, a flapper, we never see her face, is uh, walking. And she is the one that causes Grady to maneuver around her unexpectedly. And that's what uh, causes him to spill the tray of drinks on Jack. I couldn't help but think, could that be the woman in the bathtub? And she might not be tall enough is the only thing, but otherwise she's white, blonde hair, you know, has the right basic build. But I, I ultimately, I think that was one connection too many, but it did kind of, it, it's somewhat cool to think about like that woman was young at this point in the timeline that this party occurred. So anyway, he spills the drinks on, on the jacket, and yeah, this is where we go into that incredible bathroom, which is like one of Stanley Kubrick's greatest set designs. You've never seen a bathroom like this. If you ever walked into a bathroom like this, there would be one thing you would think of, and it would be this movie. Quite quite indelible. I, I, I Actually, I would say I feel similarly about the bathroom in 237, but I agree. This mm-hmm. one, this is awesome. This is also a nice lavatory. <laughs> and Rich, we were talking offline uh, a couple of times here. He uses the Grady introduces himself as Delbert Grady when, at least in the the subtitles of this, um, Stuart Ullman had called him Charles Grady earlier in the film. I don't know what's up with that contradiction. If that's just subtitles, what well, we'd have to you know go back to that later. But can anyone correct me? I understand what you're saying with the captions, but then. Does Jack call him on it? Doesn't Jack question his name? Am I Del- I think there's something in his pronunciation where he says Delbert Grady. Yeah. Again, because it's Kubrick, I don't think this is a helicopter shadow. This no. seems like something that he did deliberately, but I don't know exactly what it means. And it's something I've it's something that I puzzled over for 25 years and I still don't know exactly what it means. Well, it's very interesting that Jack is like just smirking. Like he's, he's owning this guy when he's confronting him on this, like in Jack's world, he's like, you know, you're the, you're the fucking caretaker, man. Like you're not fooling me. And he's just like this big shit eating grin that somehow like he's, he's seeing through this man's deception and he's calling him on it. It's it's a very strange little character beat. Well, it seems like some of it comes from that conversation they just had with Lloyd, that like it is starting to dawn on him what's going on here. He is not just a rube who is like who is just accepting that this is a room full of, of people all of a sudden. He's starting to recognize that there's something larger afoot, that there is an infrastructure that he's dealing with. Uh, with regards to this hotel and that he's communicating with something outside of his, the world that he knows with, um, with Danny and Wendy. I think I see the appeal like in a man who normal life, real life at this point has absolutely no appeal to him that, you know, any kind of fantasy that feels real and could give him license to indulge his, his urges would would seem like a wonderful escape and he doesn't have to think too much about the terms or you know whether it's real or what's causing it or what's going on it's kind of exactly what he needs at this point in his life yeah he continues to interrogate him and you know sort of try to 
push Grady into into a confession. And what it does is that Grady does drop this whole pretense that he's just this kindly butler or whatever. And he starts getting real with with Jack eventually, even though, yeah, this is a wonderfully slow played scene that that the, the sort of gear shift begins with a wonderful line and delivery. That's strange, sir. I don't have any recollection of that at all. I mentioned it earlier that the the performances by the ghosts are amazing, and it's and this whole scene is even. I mean, Jack certainly does his part, and I do love. Yes, that he adopts that sort of shit eating grin and 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 that cockiness that he's getting one over on him. But the way that Grady plays it is just is just masterful. It's so chilling, without anything actually scary really happening in the scene. Right. Absolutely. And, and the last thing that I got to bring up, even though, you know, we really should keep it moving here is this question of, well, who is the caretaker, right? Well, we know for a fact that Grady was the caretaker. It was within Jack's own lifetime. It was eight years ago. So there's no way that Jack has always been the caretaker in a, in a literal sense, right? It was Grady, you know, Jack was 31 or 28 or whatever when Grady killed his family in this hotel. So, you know, what is this really? Like, what's the what's the underlying meaning of this concept that we keep coming back to that Jack has always been the caretaker? And Grady is, you know, he's clearly, he's a, he's a butler here. He's something else. So what do we make of this? There's, there's a fungibility to Grady's role. And there's probably a fungibility to Jack's role, as I think Rich mentioned. Like, why is he in a tuxedo in, in that? picture at the end he's he's clearly he's not the caretaker in that picture i don't know what fungibility means yeah sort of yeah mutability like it can be it's flexibility (laughs) can be different things negotiable i think the the simple interpretation that you hear about this movie in that ending in particular is reincarnation right but you're right it doesn't line up with any of the timelines and so I tend to think of it in terms of the hotel, it eats people. Like it seems like the people who, who die there, and especially the ones who are sort of driven to violent deaths, the hotel just kind of keeps them. They get, they get soaked up into the fabric of it. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't really explain that you've always been the caretaker here. I don't know what that means. Maybe when you're saying that, the implication might be that, that Grady hasn't always been there, and now he's just like part of the, the troop, and he will conveniently don this guise, even though he was never the butler, but but because he's sort of a character that has been introduced to Jack as the previous caretaker, as sort of the, he's passing the baton to Jack, like he, they need to connect his experience with Jack's as the, obviously they're very similar that they're deploying him in this role. Like, again, I've always felt that this guy definitely is the pawn of the establishment. Like he, Grady is absolutely a representative of management, whether he was, you know, hired to do that or he's always quote unquote hired or he's always played that role. I, I don't know. What time period is this scene Purportedly, twenties. It looks very roaring twenties to me. 
Well, because that's I, the other thing. Because because Grady Grady and the and the murder that he participated in happened only what like ten years prior to yeah. our primary story. L- less than so that, ten years. Mm-hmm. Okay, so so that would make it happening in the the late sixties, early seventies. So it happened then, in nineteen seventy. Okay, so 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 furthermore, what do you make of that? That like Grady murdered these people in seventy, but then we seem to be in the twenties and we're meeting a version of Grady under a different name in a seemingly different role. It, yeah, it, it does seem like there, there's something going on where it's almost like time has no meaning. Mm-hmm. Well, my feeling is that the the twenties seem to be the time when the debauchery was at its height. That that's the time that the hotel really longs for. That's when all the really twisted shit was going on, and yeah. it's it's able to get a hold of the Delbert Grady's and the Jack Torrance's every once in a while now. But the real heyday, man, that was that was the Roaring Twenties. That's when there were guys in bear suits uh, with with open butt flaps blowing guys on on beds. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> I agree. I mean that that makes a lot of sense. Um it's not necessarily ancient Rome, but for the United States, yeah, I could I could see that. Well, just because we got to keep things moving here, um the next thing that I wanted to bring up and this is yeah, this is random, but the kid is listening to he's watching, but we're only hearing the roadrunner uh, cartoon that he's watching and it did kind of strike me and yes this is stoner pretension but there's a sort of a metaphor between the roadrunner and wily e. coyote with jack and his son in the way things play out that the kid ultimately is learning how to be roadrunner and jack is wily e. coyote and he can't catch him and ultimately the roadrunner danny outwits Wiley Coyote, and there's a. I see a parallel there. Sorry, I had I to throw it out. I don't think that's stoner pretension. They had to pay for that. Yeah, you know what I mean. Yeah. That was that was a conscious decision to choose that cartoon. And again, it's Stanley Kubrick. So yeah, I bet you're. I bet you're absolutely right about that, John. That Thank you. Warner Brothers. So they had a they had an inroad there in terms of licensing. You want to get stoner about it. I'd, I'd go further and say that there's a stoner fallibility in that in that argument, which is that the Roadrunner manages to frequently outsmart Wiley e. Coyote by having the fluidity to move between real and fantasy. Um, mm. You know, the painted tunnel on the side of the of the mountain that the Roadrunner can pass through, but for some reason Wiley e. Coyote can't. Whereas in this movie, it seems like actually Jack is the one who has the fluidity to move between fantasy and reality, whereas Danny's only able to see uh, the existence of, of either. But he's able to navigate it in a way that, that Jack has less control over. Jack is, is, is a pawn, but Danny kind of retains some lucidity, even though he has to rely on the Tony uh, self-defense mechanism. He never goes. He never loses objectivity the way that Jack does. You guys are blowing my mind, man. <laughs> <laughs> it's also sad, like because we talked about uh, Wendy earlier and her. I mentioned you know her loyalty and trust, and it's sad seeing when she tells Danny that 
you know, she's just going to be gone for a little while. And she goes and quietly, unobtrusively picks up the bat, hoping that he won't notice that she's going to go, you know, take this bat with her to go see what her husband is doing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's part of the tragedy of, of, of all this. And not that we need to waste a lot of a lot of tape here on the Roadrunner scene, but I was struck that there's just there's just a nice filmic quality without even getting into the the metaphors of it. Of this shot is a is a dead ringer for a shot earlier in the film where Danny and Wendy are also watching cartoons. There, it's certainly like happier times at the beginning. So this is really also just like a, a mile marker for us in terms of where we are story-wise and how the characters and their situations have, have developed. Um, you know, I, we've mentioned before, like the, the movies, the movie is full of a lot of very interesting symmetry uh, in the way that he shoots and in the way that he unfolds the stories. And this actually was a beat that I made a note of that was nice to, to sort of bring it back to this moment and and show you how far like Wendy is developed, especially as a character is crumbling. Well, that's like one of the less famous, but but it is a screenwriting maxim that don't repeat something unless there's a clear purpose. And that purpose is always, this seems to be the same situation, but you're going to understand that the context is now so different because so much has changed from the last time we saw this shot or this scene or this dynamic. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, we're at the point where, uh, Wendy finds the incredible manuscript that, uh, that Jack has left, uh, behind all work and no play makes Jack a dull boy formatted 500 different ways. And I don't think I mentioned this when we were talking earlier about like a, the shining TV show, but, I think that the episode where we see him transition from whatever he was writing to beginning to type this, that would be like the end of an episode where you're like, oh, fuck, here we go. (laughs) (laughs) Now, wait, I have a question, though. Do you think he ever wrote anything else? I think we talked about this, but yeah, I absolutely I do. I don't think he came in, like, rolled in on first day and started typing this. My interpretation is kind of that he was writing this from the beginning, that he, he never really made any progress on whatever story he's, he's working on. Dude, the level of insanity it takes to type this over and over and over, like, you are already way around the bend. Well, like, I, well, I know we can make the whole argument he was way around the bend when he got there, but no, I'm not buying that at all. I'm, here's what I'm going to point out, John. We don't see him typing until the time that Wendy comes in and he gives the whole, look, if you hear me typing, click, 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 that means I'm working. So whatever you hear, whatever the fuck I'm doing, don't come in. When he flips out on her, that's the first time we see him actually writing in that room, I believe. Uh, and so I think it's possible. We see him throwing a tennis ball. We see him sleeping. We see him... Uh, doing lots of other things. I don't think he's written anything else. You know, so he's a writer. Yeah. Mm. Well said, Rich. Um, Personally, I don't see the appeal of that reading. Like, I don't see how that makes this more interesting, but... but, uh, Because I... John, because I think he's devoid of ideas. I don't think he ever had an idea for a book. I, I I think that bankruptcy is part of what drove him to this madness. God, isn't that the ultimate horror of of any writer though is yes. like this 
you, you sort of define yourself by that only to realize that, that deep down you have nothing to say. I mean, not even deep down. You're completely incapable of doing it at all. Yeah, that, I, I get it. I mean, that would be – that is a crippling nightmare, which uh, I think we can all sort of imagine, I suppose. I also want to point out just on the uh, – to add to the list of stoner uh, connections – and doing a little bit of research, uh, the All Work and No Play is actually from – it's a line in the bridge on the River Kwai. So that I believe is the inspiration for that line, which you may remember ends with uh, Major Clifton as played by James Donald witnessing the carnage, shaking his head and muttering madness, madness. Hmm. I so, have not I seen know. that movie in a long time. I, I did love it when I was a kid. I once I once I heard that and I and I remembered that madness madness line and so I went sort of looked it up to make sure I had all my all my facts straight, but it is I don't know I, I you can't you know I can't say this is what Kubrick is saying by using this and that, but I, I it does seem sort of a, a startling coincidence that the theme of madness is so prevalent uh, among the two films. It's interesting hmm. that we intercut between this scene, you know, where Jack is now confronting her after she found all that. Then we cut to Danny, and he's, you know, in the, back in that traumatized seer mode. And then, you know, we're also intercutting another layer into this. We actually have three layers of, of story going on here where we have Jack and Wendy, then we have... Danny in the in the room, and then we have what he's what Danny is seeing or the idea is that he's not even necessarily looking literally psychically at, at his parents. He's seeing the rivers of blood. And this is like the most all encompassing deluge of blood that we see in the entire film. Cause like literally the lens is painted with, with blood and then the furniture is moving around. Like it's way beyond that sort of classic shot that everyone knows in this film uh, whether you're a casual fan or you've just you know seen an excerpt of it, but no, this is actually like blood has covered the camera and everything is is floating in blood, and it's like the worst case scenario that we see. And I'm, I'm just kind of wondering why. What is that? Is that just represent the the horror of like his parent, his, his father is about to kill his mother, and then him. Or is he actually looking deeper into the overall history of, of the hotel here? As you're saying, it's kind of a literal opening of the floodgates in mm-hmm. terms of unleashing the potential of the evil in this space. So it's, yeah, it's both literal and metaphorical. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, basically it's like, it's like, the, yes, the, the, the madness is about to truly be let run amok. In some movies, that could just be a representation of his fear about what his father is going to do. But because Wendy sees it as well, clearly it has a, a larger significance. I think that Kubrick was driving to set one day and he drove past an elevator <laughs> with blood coming out of it. That was a uh, a Halloween <laughs> two remake uh, reference. There, I hope you all enjoyed it. <laughs> yeah, check that episode out, guys. That's a fun one if you haven't listened to it. <laughs> Rob Zombie, everybody. It's a great image, and I do think this is one of the few times when Danny's shining gives him not just not some vision of the future. 
but really connects him. He's he's just seeing something that's happening simultaneously in another part of the hotel. It's very ambiguous as to like whether he's he's spying on this, witnessing this, or he's just feeling sort of the psychic ramifications that could come of this. And or the hotel is just taking this opportunity to overload him the way you would use chaff to jam sensors of, of a plane that you know you don't want to know what you what you're doing and to distract him from what's going on in the Colorado lounge I don't know who knows it's true I can I say I do not care for Nicholson's delivery in much of this this scene when when Wendy's really? sort of backing up the stairs like the uh, whole this, has it ever occurred to you what would happen to my future that kind of thing it's not even, well it's not even that it's the uh, Wendy darling light of my life there's a thing was like you didn't let me finish except he didn't like wait like i don't know it didn't it like the, it just didn't work the flow of the dialogue didn't work he's mm. so he's so over the top there's a scene where he sort of reaches for the bat and like and like snaps his teeth at her well it's you know, all of a piece i mean it's it's built it's a one long extremely long continuous sequence and he's ramping up very gradually but but definitively you know, I'm just saying point. it it doesn't work for me. It took it takes me out of the movie. It feels it feels miscalculated. I mean, he, he's condescending to her through this whole scene, and at the same time, he's also though quote unquote speaking his truth. You know, he's talking about she's not sensitive to what he's going through and what the stakes are for him, and he's insulting her at every turn, but but a part of it is that he feels like she's not aware of the pressure that's on him. All of his resentments and disrespect are just, you know, gradually boiling and bubbling higher and higher very steadily. I don't think it's choppy. I mean, I think it's a very discernible increase in his uh, aggression. No, it's it's. I mean, what I'm talking about is, is it's literally the the rhythm of the dialogue. Uh, I'm looking at it right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, like I said, what I say is, when he's like, Wendy, you know, I'm not going to hurt you. I'm not going to hurt you. You didn't let me finish. I, it, she didn't cut him off. You know uh, what I mean? Like it's it's there's there's just stuff in there where it doesn't. It just feels like it doesn't quite work. It's all one take. That part, like the last yeah. several lines that you're talking about, are all one take. Yeah. Hmm, interesting. So, there is a theory that is, as far as I'm aware, like in the research that I did for this thing and the, and the various shining uh, conspiracy theorists out there, the one that I found easiest to follow is a guy who's writing a blog um, called I Scream that is that breaks down this movie in fairly great detail. Um, but one thing he pointed out in this scene that I thought was interesting, that I think is part of that fic, is that the idea that – talking about the, the repetition that you see in this film, and he talks about how what's going on in this scene is that Jack is trying to talk to Wendy as though she is one of the ghosts and that he is increasingly being frustrated and trying to put words into her mouth because he's upset that she won't – like the ghosts do, um, like feed his like neurosis. So like he is trying to like, he keeps trying to say what she's thinking instead of letting her speak because he's upset that she is like challenging him. 
I can get behind that. That's an interesting interpretation because I think he's definitely upset that she's challenging him. And maybe she never has before is also a possibility. It's interesting. I like, I like the idea that like the problem with this marriage is that she's not a ghost. (laughs) 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 But no, I agree. But it's look, I mean, it, it, that's a, again, a very small complaint, but it is every time I watch it, I feel like the dialogue in that scene just it just grates on me a little bit. So you needed her to interrupt him for real? Is that what you're basically saying? Like she I, needed the, actually? It, I I feel like they needed to rehearse the scene a couple of times. Oh, that's my what God. it feels like. It, it feels. No, I'm just saying. Well, no, but what I'm saying is it doesn't. It doesn't feel natural. It doesn't feel like this conversation is actually happening. It feels staged. It feels fake. But, okay, but you you know, like the one it thing feels you, performative. I understand, but the one thing that you cannot ever say, ever about a Stanley Kubrick movie, is that they didn't rehearse it or they didn't do like they probably did a hundred take. Not okay, not a hundred. They they did a hundred takes of a few scenes, but they did a minimum of twenty five, thirty takes of that. So whatever we can criticize, it's not that they didn't like rehearse it enough. <laughs> they didn't. They didn't get it right, and they needed another take. I'm telling you, it's off. I'd, mm-hmm. I'd say that I'd say that Kubrick, notwithstanding, I'm kind of in Vic's camp, and I I think that the easiest way for me to describe this is that it is definitely the most Jack Nicholson of all the performances in here, um, in a in the the negative sense that that can invoke. I've never noticed it. I didn't quite get it watching it while you were talking, but I'm not, you know, maybe I will if I look at it again. I mean, I will say I did kind of get, I, I can't say it's bad, but it's a weird gear shift when he goes. So he he, he goes to, I'm just going to bash your brains in. Like, it, yeah, yeah that, that, there's something there. There's something there. You're right. So now he's locked in the food pantry, right? Okay. And speaking of like sort of acting and the way and staging, I I thought the way he like gradually regains consciousness is really good in that, in that sequence. But now there's this amazing shot where we're underneath him and we're looking up at his, up his nose basically, but he has this hand on this strange, like it's the version of the door handle on the inside. Kubrick apparently like was positioned right under him, well, at least he, you know, when he mapped out the shot, because I saw that in the Vivian Kubrick documentary, and then, you know, he puts the camera operator there to shoot it. But um, it's one of the most sort of indelible shots of the movie to me is, is looking up at, at Jack while he's pressing his hand against this door. And, uh, you know, it's just such an unhinged, it's a bizarre angle. You would never shoot up up your character's nose in this way, except when you're sort of portraying this kind of deranged situation. And here's the spot too, where you see Jack trying to manipulate her yeah, and trying to, you know, get her sympathy back. And he's so crazy that he can't do it. Like he, I think he literally has passed a point where he can even mimic the person that he used to be, which you're talking, you know, 20 minutes earlier, whatever, when they were in the uh, in their little apartment after the incident in 237, right. where he does sort of manage to pull it off. And here you can see he can't. He can't pull it off. And he, you're never going to see him try to be normal again for the rest of the film. 
Yeah, I mean, her response is, I'm going to go now. I mean, when he says he ne- he needs a, a doctor, and, and she says she's going to try to get Danny down to, to Sidewinder, and, you know, she'll she'll come back with a doctor, which, which makes sense under the circumstances. But she's not totally, like, because she's such an innocent soul and a trusting soul, like, we don't get a sort of cynical, sarcastic response to him. But, yeah, she's, she's, not, she's not buying it. But then, of course, he he can't resist saying, you know, you're not, you're not taking the snow cat to side one wider. To me, like that bit of dialogue actually irritates the hell out of me because he, he has that whole windup of like, go check out the snow cat. Mm-hmm. And it's like, you don't like, we didn't, we didn't need that. We're about to go through a scene where she goes out to the snow cat and sees what's, what's happening. Like, why couldn't he have left it? more ambiguous but to me that that was actually just like very flat screenwriting and, and filmmaking to have him lay out what he had done in a sense hmm. see i actually i think that works because i think jack wants to lord over her the fact that he's outsmarted her yeah yeah that's that's how i see it he, he can't resist it he takes great pleasure in it he really has no reason at this point to say, okay, yeah, that sounds like a plan. Come back in a few, you know, or good luck. Take Danny. You know, like he has, he's not trying to, to fool her as to who did this at this point. He has no, there's no reason for him logically to pretend he's not the culprit. So he, he enjoys it. Well, and I think he wants her to know, look, you may have gotten the better of me in this, for this moment. But yeah, but I but I was ahead of you, and you know it's it's him trying to recapture some of the power in the dynamic. One last thing um, I want to point out that I don't think we've ever discussed is the acceleration of the timeline, which I think is really cool and it builds the tension. And you know, talk about sort of obvious techniques, but it, it works really well that we start out like one month later, and then suddenly it's like Tuesday. Okay, now we're following it by the day, and now like at this late juncture in the movie, it says four p.m. So you're like, okay, you know, we're really um, narrowing our focus, and the intensity is building. So yeah, Grady comes to visit Jack, and this scene like seems very when he's locked up. It seems overt in its its meaning. Like Grady is judging him for his failure, and he has not conducted the business that they discussed, which which does sort of suggest a literal, uh, you know, he he was given a mission and he's failed at it. And he says, I'll deal with that situation as soon as I get out of here. And (laughs) Grady just is like, continues to doubt him. He's like, will you, Mr. Torrance? I have my doubts. And he also brings up the idea of others being involved. And also, of course, he's, he's suggesting Grady is that he is amongst the leadership in some way. In that he says, I and others have come to believe that your heart is not in this, which is an interesting interpretation. I love, I love the line that you haven't the belly for it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, which, which is really just kind of calling him out for his failure because he doesn't seem that conflicted. Um, but it's sort of just inspiring him. Like he, he knows that Jack is somewhat incompetent and you, you really need to sort of rile him up like a football coach if he's going to complete his, his task here. I find it an interesting choice that we don't see 
Grady in yeah. in this scene that it, we only see Jack and that Grady is just this kind of disembodied voice and it really does it's I mean it's it's strange that when I conjure the other side of the door I really do have this sense that maybe it's just a disembodied voice mm-hmm. that it, this is just the hotel speaking directly to Jack basically yeah just using Grady's voice but he's Which, not out there in his in his tuxedo well, all of which begs the question, and we've talked about this before, like, to what degree is this an amalgam of spirits versus a collection of faces that the entity, whatever the, the you know, whatever the hotel is, can it just put on these faces uh, to manipulate scenes as it sees fit? I don't know. It's, I, I, don't, I don't know that there's an answer. That I don't think the movie provides an answer to that. I, I, I get a... a- distinctly contradictory feeling. I mean, I I keep saying it, but I just kind of think of this as a rogues gallery. Um, There's so much sort of chaos and anarchy in the various personalities and flashes we get of various spirits and ghosts that while, you know, Grady clearly is the personification and the voice of something that is at least somewhat rational and cold and, you know, it, it has the essence of an institution and the, the the cold judgments of an institution, but we get so many loose cannons or, you know, senses of loose cannons. I just don't think that it's, it's this multiple personalities within one entity. I think it's actually multiple personalities is my feeling, but I don't See, know. I get, the, I get the feeling, and especially as we've gone through this process, I really get the feeling that there is an intelligence at work that the, that the hotel feels more and more like a puppet master driving Jack toward this ultimate goal of murdering his family. But are they all pulling together in that way? Like, cause I just, when I come back to the room two, three, seven scene with the woman laughing at him, I, I just, I, I know we, when we talked about this a few minutes ago, you know, one of you guys, I think maybe it was rich, but you know, the the idea that, that somehow that would be pushing him towards his goal. But I I just, I don't see that. I think that it punking him like that was, was, was not part of like, just, Oh, well clearly that's going to get Jack to do what they want. You know, I just don't see that. Well, clearly you're wrong. (laughs) That's what I'm saying. You're wrong. One, one more line here really quick that I, I really feel like I have to mention is when, when, when Grady says, your wife appears to be much stronger than we had anticipated, than we imagined, Mr. Torrance. Which is just not something I actually think about her. And it's one of it's uh, when we talked about the the scene on the stairs. That's one of the thoughts, right? Is that what what she what Jack did was walk into the baseball bat she was swinging defensively (laughs) like that was the that was the level of strength that they weren't anticipating from her i mean did they maybe they didn't think she would grab the bat in the first place i don't know she didn't she didn't like crumble you know like she she never really backs down in that scene which i think is 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 kind of on display when she when she won't let him out of the freezer too like i I really enjoy the way that Wendy kind of develops as a character where, like you said, without ever giving away that, that innocence that she has, she's just sort of like, as a matter of factly, it's just like, I'm not going to let you out of the freezer. 
like she just like backs away. So she has a backbone to her. Like, yes, she has this kind of mousy, fragile persona, but she does really develop a, a backbone, um, in the sense that like, she doesn't give in to him. She's not seduced by this the way that he is. You're just saying this because your wife's name is Wendy. <laughs> they got to stick together. Yeah. No, no, I think that's a great point because it's it's it would have been very easy for her, even being a loyal and trusting person, to just like allow him to to kill her basically because she would she would give him too much uh, credence and too much trust and and buy his bullshit and and when he needed to dispensive with her he he would have but but she early enough becomes suspicious of him and and wary and guarded and does not give him that opportunity you know say what you want about exactly how it plays out with him reaching for the bat and all that i mean she is not going to be an easy mark and that that that's what saves her basically is is that you know she she becomes fundamentally distrustful of him early enough to save herself and her son speaking of her son while um Halloran is making his way up the final roads in his snowcat tony has taken over danny and he's just sort of walking around his mother is in a fitful sleep and tony is just repeating very gradually Faster and faster, red rum, red rum, <laughs> and so on, as it gets more and more um, pronounced. And he's touching a knife, and it's, it's really interesting because Tony's in the driver's seat here. Like Danny can't handle this, and Tony is stepping up to help them get through this because I do believe that if Tony were not to do this whole red rum lipstick yelling um, iconic scrawling on the door to wake up Wendy yes Jack would have made it back in here and killed them both that's correct and I mean that scene is so iconic for it's such a variety of reasons, but it just it speaks to what I've been talking about in terms of the script. This is a really tight script. Things are things are not wasted here, and yeah. so this scene is really scary. And the way that it plays out is really scary. And Danny Lloyd actually plays it really well, but it also serves a functional narrative purpose. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is kind of where. We're not sure Danny is up to this challenge, and neither is Tony, because at every turn, Danny has shut down when confronted with too much. And luckily, he has whatever, whether you call it a psychological self-defense mechanism or a supernatural friend. Um, By the way, this is the only Haunted House movie where the imaginary ghost friend is a good guy, right? I mean, at least among our 32. And, and lives in the child's mouth yes <laughs> that is a weird um but but very childlike uh conception which also muddies the water about how real it is or not right although hard to have a tea party with an imaginary friend that lives in your mouth well not really i mean you just pour the tea right in there i mean it's a direct and, 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 and tony goes ah it burns it burns <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, he's just drenched in hot tea. <laughs> Why would you do that? <laughs> just shows him in his little tweed suit or something, just dripping. <laughs> <laughs> That'll be Paranormal 7, I'm sure. Yeah. So, yeah, Jack is chopping his way in, and um, Wendy can't get the door or the window open enough to cr- climb out herself. And this is something I think I alluded to earlier, that um, because she can't escape here, and we get, the, of course, the iconic, Wendy, I'm home line, uh, Jack would have killed her if Halloran hadn't showed up at this point. But... Danny gets away, and here's here's my criticism of the whole movie. Uh, Vic's got his helicopter shot. I've got that Danny is wearing this sweater and jeans and um, no coat at all, and he is outside for the rest of this movie, and he never even shivers, let alone freezes to death. I don't know. Doesn't he come back in and he hides inside the thing with the pots and pans? Oh, yeah. yeah. I'm sorry. He does. He does. But he spends a lot of time outside. I guess. Yeah, you're, right. you're right that he spends an unrealistic amount of time outside. Although kids have no sense of uh, of what temperature they are or it is outside, in, in my experience. Yeah. yeah I, I, concur, I concur with that. I just want to double back a, a, a tiny bit here. Um I guess I just want to say, like this this scene. I guess we're we're, we're bridging into the the famous axe scene, and and you have that hot off the heels off the of the red rum scene. This is something where you know I wasn't really exposed to this film until uh, I guess college maybe, and then I've I've only seen it a couple handful of times since then. You you know I've told you guys about this before. I don't know if it's this is a case where I was just exposed too much to the to the cliche of this scene and just like the the repetition in pop culture, but I find especially the red rum scene to be very ineffective for me. It seems like pretty obvious what's going on early on. It seems like they just like ring a lot of drama out of it, and her reaction at the word murder written on the wall just seems like way over the top. Like for me, the red rum beat in particular just doesn't work. Like I find it almost laughably bad. And I don't know if that's again, because it just got, I got overexposed to, you know, the, the tagline before I actually saw the final product. I'd say, I'd say the act scene, like a, a little, is a little more effective. Like the, the terror feels a little more palpable. I'm still a little confused as to why he shouts, "Here's Johnny!" Um, through the door. Maybe someone can illuminate that um, because that's obviously you know another one of the iconic lines that gets that gets tossed around around here. Um, but yeah, this these are the scenes that people think of when they think of The Shining, um, and I'd say that to a fault. Huh. Well, Rich, you see, there was a there was a show called The Tonight Show. And the host of The Tonight Show was named Johnny Carson. First off, yeah, I, all I can say is, huh, because I don't, I, don't, I don't get it at all, anything that you're saying, Rich, to be honest. But as far as, like, why it doesn't work. Um, and I would also just say, like, to me, it's just so obvious, and I, I, I just said this, but, I mean, it bears repeating that it, there's a practical narrative purpose. It, it, if he hadn't done that, she would have kept sleeping, and they would die. I mean, what that 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 point is that point is perfectly fine. 
and, I, and I'm even admitting that, like, I feel like I am being superficially, like, biased against this scene. Like, from a narrative point of view, sure. I think that it, its function within the story and the point that you're making is totally valid. I'm just talking about execution. I'm saying I don't find it scary as a horror scene, especially for how much mileage it's gotten out of it. I find Danny's performance, like, the, the voice he's doing more obnoxious than I do unsettling. Um, I find like the, you know, the, the fact when he writes red rum on the wall, like it immediately, like it seems obvious that he's writing the word murder backwards. You know, but it's hard I mean, for you not to know that he is writing murder, right? I, I mean, that's, that's what, that's what I'm saying. Like I, it's, it's impossible for me to put myself in the mindset of someone watching this fresh in the theater when it was upon its release. I did question, it's, like he, he gets one of the R's backwards, but like, well, why is that R backwards? But he gets the other one right, you know, when it when it's reflected. Yeah, uh, I, I'm actually literally I'm I'm recording in the room where my kids are doing school right now, and I'm looking at some of my son's writing, and that seems pretty accurate, actually. There's now and then one one letter will be yep. will be backwards. Okay. Yep. I mean, I think that one will chalk up to mileage will vary. Um, because it's hard to have an objective. I think it's it's a subjective situation. But, I mean, look, there's something, anything, one of the themes of this whole season of our podcast has been sometimes things get mined to death and because they've been imitated and repurposed and memed and, uh, you know, explored and expanded upon in later films, they can lose power for me personally. <laughs> changeling. <coughs> Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Changeling. Sure. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, it's hard for me to, to imagine changeling as it would have been at the time when it came out. I get, I get that that's kind of partially what's going on with you, Rich. I just, for me, this movie exists in its own reality and however many parodies I've seen, it, it doesn't, it doesn't totally diminish it. But, but yeah, I mean, it's also so over the top, like everything he's doing when he's vamping, um, chopping into the door at the various one-liners and whatnot. I mean, it lends itself to parody. I'll say that. I, I also want to, uh, just while we're here, but before we move fully on, I want to point out that, that, Vic, you're talking about how tight this script is when we are hot off the heels of scenes like Halloran wandering out of a snowstorm and then standing at a, at a counter where then you hear a weather report talking about how there is a snowstorm followed by a scene of him driving in a snowstorm. So I don't know the, the praising the tightness of the script. At okay. Stage now wait, we've acknowledged, we've acknowledged that the Halloran stuff is kind of an outlier and none of us really understand the how or the why of that. But right. the, beyond, beyond that, I was impressed by the, the narrative tightness of the script, but you're right. It's the Halloran stuff is, is I won't say inexcusable, but it's, it's thus far inexplicable. I, I, I think I've made the defense before, but the, the, the one purpose or the saving grace of the Halloran stuff is just that we're playing games with the audience and, you know, the cinematic tradition of watching some character, you know, in a, on a laborious journey to save the day, they're going to save the day. And it, it is definitely a subversion of audience expectations to go through all of that and have it amount to nothing. It makes it more shocking. Like if he just showed up and we didn't see any of that, it'd be like, Oh, okay. 
That was meaningless. But the fact that we that we see what he goes, the lengths he goes to to get there, and then he just dies that way. I think it actually it, it it's what if there's any impact to the way this guy goes out, it's actually because we saw all of that stuff of his journey to get there. Just to bolster that point uh, and, and draw it back to one of our other films, as you're saying that, John, I think that we have an example of that, which is when the boyfriend shows up unceremoniously in the third act of Oculus right. to be killed with absolutely zero lead up um, to his appearance. And it does feel like a it feels like we completely missed something or that the, the filmmakers just simply weren't thinking that story beat through and needed to like close a loophole. Well, we might if have we, a chance to look at that again later. If we'd just seen him at work trying to figure out where, where his, his fiance was and then, and then calling an Uber and then getting in the Uber and then the Uber getting a flat tire and then him having to get on a bus well, yeah, but, but the idea of it is, from the audience perspective, is like, well, what if we became invested in Oculus that this guy was going to save the day in some way, yeah. you know? And that's exactly how you do it. No, I, I, John, I understand. Yeah. I understand. So, at this point, like, when he's stalking, Jack is stalking Halloran, and Wendy is left behind with this door was 80% chopped through at this point. Like, she was toast. Um, and she was not going to be able to fight him off with her um, chef's knife. Meanwhile, he's gone far enough away that she's able to hack through um, and get out. And Jack is is distracted. We still believe, again, pretending you've seen this movie for the first time, that Halloran is going to have a meaningful impact. But what I'm saying, yeah, is that subtly he does have a meaningful impact. Um, it's just, you know, under the surface, he does save her. And Jack limping around with the axe is one of the more also iconic images of the film. He's somehow more menacing because it's like his his decrepit leg and his decrepit gait reflects his, his compromised sanity. He's, he's devolving. Right. Like it's by the end of it, like he really looks like an animal almost. That's right. A caveman at best. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And there's certainly like a a, a classic like doggedness to the, Mm -hmm. you know, I mean, we're, I think we're, we're all used to seeing, um, you know, slashers and, and creatures that, that seemingly nothing hurts them. Whereas like, obviously that makes him very human. Like he is starting to like, he is starting to break down and suffer from, you know, the, everything that he's going through. Yeah. He, he's, he doesn't fit the slasher archetype of like Michael Myers or something where you're always composed and poised and infla- unflappable. His frailties are writ large, uh, physically, mentally, and emotionally. Maybe that is more powerful in the sense that he is maybe not a puppet for this, uh, this larger force, um, you know, but he's not a Michael Myers. He's not a just this evil that can't be stopped. He is just a man that is sort of possessed and being driven by forces he doesn't understand. So it's like, sure, he's going to put his body through whatever needs to be done to accomplish its goal. But it's also more sympathetic in a way that, yeah, he, he never transcends humanity. He's just this poor, sad, pathetic, misguided 
asshole who, you know, finds himself the pawn of, of greater forces because of his insecurities and his weakness and his, his spoiled pride and everything else. He, and gets out and gets outsmarted by a five-year-old. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a wonderful comeuppance for a character like that. Yeah. I'm just, I happen to have paused it on the scene, uh, the image of the bear and the man in the tuxedo, um, looking at Wendy from the bed where the fellatio was being performed. It's kind of hard to perform fellatio in that mask. It was probably a little uncomfortable for the guy in the tux. Yeah. Oh, sure, John. You just happened to pause it on that scene. <laughs> it's been paused on that for 65 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> I do want to throw out the idea, and I don't know where, where to take this, but you know, I mentioned earlier that it certainly appears that when you see Danny after his like his spell in the the first scene of this movie or his first scene of this movie um that he's lying on a on a pillow that that seems to have a face very similar to to that of the bear and here you have Wendy um seeing that bear and so i'm wondering is there something to the idea that it's presenting to Wendy images that are familiar to her. That it's not necessarily that she's just getting a a glimpse into a window of the past, which is kind of what we've suggested earlier with the idea that like, oh, well, this is like the height of debauchery, and so like she's just you know getting a, a glimpse of like the twisted like world that these people were were living at the time. Is it more that Wendy's seeing a, a, a mix of the the horror that happened in the hotel and the horrors that like make sense to her mind? Does that does that track for you guys? It it could, but that sort of pushes it more. It lends to that reading of the movie that their own personal madnesses are are contributing to what they're experiencing. And I think somebody Kubrick or one one of the principals involved said that this was a movie about three people going crazy together. And yeah, that would certainly support that in in the sense that like at this point her her sanity is, is has been compromised by all of this trauma and all of these forces, and she she could very well be getting this miasma of of her own trauma and memories and demons mixed in with with what the hotel brings to the table. Yeah, it's interesting. Rich, I'm going to have to get high and watch the movie again, and I will get back to you. I, I mean, he brought it up earlier, and I didn't think that the actual pillow was like a dead ringer or anything, but but yeah, I could see it. So Wendy is uh, rolling through the hotel, seeing crazy shit with her, her chef's knife, and meanwhile, Danny is fleeing from his dad outside the hotel, and in, in her extremity seeing uh the corpse of of halloran seems to take another uh toll on on wendy and like now she's really losing it and 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 fraying her sanity is fraying even more she's in a complete state of panic and that's when this guy another guest shows up and says great party isn't it and it looks like maybe an axe or something has cleaved his skull He's, he's definitely bleeding down right through the front of his face. 
And yeah, we have no idea what his story is, but um, he's quite jovial. Actually, I'm never quite sure what to make of this part. And, and don't get me wrong, I, I do enjoy this sequence where Wendy is just like waltzing through a house of horrors. But I'm never totally sure what to make of it. I mean, for for one, there's the point that I brought up earlier about why is Wendy able to see this? And I know we said, well, maybe she has like a, a touch of the, the shining herself, you know, or maybe that the that the the forces in this hotel are are finally powerful enough to make themselves visible to to just about anyone. Or maybe it's the fact that that she's gone crazy herself. I mean, I don't know. We we've explored options for it. But then when you get down to even just what's happening to Wendy on a, on a story level, you know, one note that I made was that Wendy's story really ends when she pushes Danny out the, the bathroom window. Like she doesn't do anything else effective. She just reacts for the rest of the movie. Um, but her last true act in this film is to, to save Danny, which effectively saves herself. It's true. I mean, I think that the hotel is trying to distract her. The hotel knows that this is the end game, and so these are these are just the ways that it is trying to keep her from finding Danny, and and trying to drive her sort of past the brink. Also so interesting feels- that like if she can't drive the snowcat out of there, Danny could still be fucked, right? So if it could kill her, you know, physically, it it, it would behoove it to do so, but it either does not or cannot. Yeah, it just it, this feels like the hotel is pulling the the management is pulling out all the stops. There, this is it. This is we're gonna we're gonna get Dan Jack's gonna get Danny, you know, and then ultimately Wendy, I'm sure. But it's pulling out all the stops to try and get to that end goal. But maybe it doesn't have the firepower. You know, it can't have the the woman in the bathtub suddenly, you know, pounce out of a closet and and strangle uh, Wendy to death. You know, apparently that that's not an option. And I also want to note that the ballroom or the the lobby, the hotel lobby, when you see all of these uh, skeletons in, um, like they're sort of they've got a bottle of champagne. Again, everything is is relating to like new year's eve or something but um the skeletons in like covered in cobwebs and everything this to me is one of the my least favorite things in the whole movie it it just seems very hokey and old-fashioned and i've i've never really liked it it just it's so brief it doesn't really matter but i just kind of feel like oh well two skeleton couples hanging out having champagne covered in cobwebs is just it's 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 a little corny to me I agree a hundred percent. Is it uh, this? This may be a dumb question. Is it possible that it is New Year's Eve? Nick, that is a dumb question. Thank you. Um, <laughs> uh, no, I don't know. That that's a dumb question at all. I, <clears throat> while you say New Year's Eve, my my inclination is that we're expected to understand that this is part of the the what is it the Fourth of July ball? Uh, yeah. That we see the the photo of Jack in later. Like oh, that's right. Yeah, because it's not New Year's Eve. Okay. Yeah. No, it was it was a dumb question. Never mind. No, I don't even. I I, I don't even know that it is because he you, you meant literally like by the point on the calendar that everyone is actually the Torrances. This could be New Year's Eve, it's right? The, it's the middle of winter. Right. Something tells me they that that they haven't been tracking. Uh, you know how close it is to Christmas at this point. But 
Uh, yeah, I, I don't think I'm not sure there's there's really anything to support that. I just after the haunting of Hell House, like who knows? Maybe they all happen at Christmas. There is one freaky thing in this skeleton shot. Like, there's a guy in a hat, like, behind them, like, 30 to 40 feet away in the deep background. And he almost looks like he's wearing, like, a trench coat or something. He's got this fedora on or something. And I have maybe, – maybe it's just another dumb skeleton, but he seems to be standing. It's, it's kind of weird. I, I will say, just returning back to the New Year's Eve thing really quick, uh, I mean, like, the – the correlation of like the time that the, the Torrances are living in makes a lot of sense, but I am every time we get to the end of the movie and it reveals the photo and you're like, Oh look, Oh wow. He's there at the new year's Eve. No wait, The 4th of July, like who the hell celebrates the 4th of July like this? Yeah. Like, I don't know why they didn't make it, why they didn't just make it the new year's Eve ball and, and have that correlation that you're talking about except for the fact that is the idea to be that the 4th of July somehow relates back to that idea of, uh, of this country being taken over by quote unquote Americans. My first thought is that they didn't want us to get overly invested in the idea of new year's Eve or the 4th of July. And they wanted to just sort of say, this is how the overlook parties like this is, various events, various events are high points or low points, depending on how you look at it. And it didn't want to just lock us in too much on the significance of, of one. So they have more than one. But when I was just looking at the skeletons and their stuff, like there were clearly the kinds of things you see on new year's Eve. Like it's very obviously new year's Eve for part of this. So I, I just take that to mean they don't want us to obsess about one holiday. I guess that's fair, but the Overlook should have been closed for New Year's Eve. Oh yeah, that's a good point. Well, in, in, unless that's where the uh, that's where the ultra rich that's where they truly partied because there was no you know fear of outsiders mm. coming in environment. That's you know, a really interesting rich. thought. Any any excuse for uh, a drunken orgy among rich uh, white people? That's why <laughs> we fourth, need to the Fourth of July, New Year's Eve, whatever it is. Let's have a big ass party. Everybody, get out your bear costumes. And that's why we need to cover society on our next podcast. I've never seen that, and it's it's I've come across it a few times. I keep yeah. thinking we should do it. I've never seen it either. I've definitely heard about it quite a bit. If it had fit the Halloween weekend theme, I might have mentioned it um, because it's something that I've seen once and it, it is fucking jaw droppingly crazy. Um, but it, yeah, it, it's its own thing. Well, uh, Vic, that was a very valid point uh, about New Year's Eve. I will just say that if the filmmakers wanted to include Fourth of July iconic iconography iconography they could have and they didn't so I, I think they are making it very ambiguous as far as like what the parties we're seeing are in any event now jack is losing steam chasing danny around in the wood in this maze and danny still doesn't look that cold but um yeah he's he's got a high metabolism <laughs> and 
we're, we're basically at the point where Jack is like turning around and confused. And, and I, I really had the sense that he'd spent very little time in this maze. Whereas Danny, you know, had really made a point, even not knowing the purpose of it, but he, he has mastered this thing and it, it's on his turf. Now this is the advantage goes to Danny here. And, uh, she gets out in time to, you know, like right there when, when Danny runs out of the hedge maze, she's there and they're reunited. And meanwhile, Jack is hopelessly lost and he has to endure the indignity of hearing them run off and the snowcat drive away. And he knows he's, he's lost everything, literally everything. You have to kind of feel a degree of compassion for this doomed fuck up whose rage and insecurities have brought him to a just, but certainly ignominious fate. I mean, to to some extent, except he's like, he's never at no real point is he likable in this film, but it's not really, that's not the game the movie is playing. The movie is not really suggesting that we're, we're supposed to, feel the tragedy or, or, or the loss of, of this man's being, this man being compromised. It's more that just, we, we know inherently the backstory here. And we know that of course he wasn't always this stupid monster, you know, like there was, there was a decent guy here. Otherwise Wendy wouldn't have married him you know, Danny wouldn't be who he is. Like you just like in, you get a real world kind of sense of this and yeah, maybe I'm just, you know, as somebody as a, as a writer and, you know, not the most successful of writers or something like I, I give him a little bit of credit for his sort of impotent rage at where he's ended up in life. I I don't, I I just, yeah, I, I don't totally dismiss him as like someone that, that never, I don't know. This is a good segue to my final thought, but so I'll hold off on that. Uh, Vic, he, what do you think? He can be, I think he can be understandable without being sympathetic. Mm-hmm. And I, so I think that's a, that's a careful distinction. Cause I agree. He's not likable at any point in the film, but a lot of what we've talked about here has really fleshed out for me. The fact that, yeah, like I do kind of understand Jack. I understand how he got here. I understand how the hotel got its hooks in him and how it was able to do this to him. He is a victim. Uh, he was kind of a willing victim, I think, but he is a victim of this. I also just think, too, the jump cut to his frozen corpse is enormously effective. Yeah. Yes, it is. That's just the last of the indelible images in this film that sort of stick with you when it's over. And you don't have to like him, but like compared to 90%, I would say, I mean, that's probably not even enough of, of horror movie characters. This guy feels like a real person to me. And just by virtue of being a real person, like a fully three-dimensional psychology like we get so many insights into what makes this guy tick and all of them very frankly again i'm not saying it's great but it's like there's a there are people who deal with that have all of his flaws okay maybe not all of them in the one in one person but but there's 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 a ring of truth to everything about this guy and 
yeah, even if his performance sometimes takes it over the top. So I just think that like as a as a real as watching this happen to a real person, I, I just think there's a degree of pathos to it. Sure. I mean, I, I guess if you want to look at this as like a almost like a character study of a of an antagonist, it is a more compelling one than you see in you know like Rob Zombie's Halloween too. Yes. That- I love talking about Rob Zombie's Halloween too, but it doesn't have this type of <laughs> doesn't have this kind of uh, texture, psychological texture. Um, yeah, and, and so in his last moments, like we just see his final steps, his lurching, pitiful steps, and yeah, m- maybe we don't have compassion for him, but we have pity, right? And I, I do find that the, the cut interesting in the sense that it's not like he, it's not like someone like. You know, like he, he's not felled like there in the snow. Right. Like he obviously like elects to sit there and freeze to death. He just well, he just runs out of gas essentially. So my final thought is kind of this: even in the opening shots, which reduce a car to a speck in a vast landscape, we're reminded frequently in this film how insignificant we are in the vastness of the universe. The shot of Danny and Wendy's tiny forms in the hedge maze when Jack is looking down at the model in the Colorado Lounge is also doing this. And it ties into the final shot of the movie where we see Jack. All Okay, first we see this wall of all of these people from different points in time in the, in the 20th century who had, or even maybe previous to that, and some of these images who have been to this hotel. And there's this huge crowd scene and he's at the he's the like the most obvious person in the entire picture, um, which is this, of course, frequently referenced July Fourth Ball in 1921 uh, in the 20s. It should be noted, as we've been talking about. But I think that where it ties into the idea of us being insects in some way is that Jack's own agency is not important in the film. He's a pawn, and he's doomed from the beginning because of his place in this predefined order that spans centuries, Jack was always going to wind up here. His soul is too weak, tortured, and corrupted to break free. And wherever he is born, his pathetic destiny is going to bring him back to the Overlook. I think it's fair to argue it's a test that he keeps failing, and I would support that interpretation, like it's karma. You keep being faced with this challenge, a lesson to learn, and until you do learn it, you're doomed to repeat the cycle of rebirth. Maybe the next Jack Torrance will break the cycle. Maybe he has a a fighting chance every time, or maybe he doesn't. But I think that the implication of the final photograph is that he's part of something he doesn't understand that extends well beyond his immediate circumstances. I think the deck is stacked against him, but you could argue that it's his flawed soul that is responsible for the fact that he's going to just be on spin cycle over and over and over until he earns his reprieve. That's a, a really interesting take, John. And I think I know we, we've brought it up multiple times, but I think that a discussion of Dr. Sleep would really bring that full circle. And the idea that that maybe there is some kind of redemption, there is some way of kind of breaking the cycle, that for for King at least uh, comes from uh, through Danny. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, that, if nothing else, Danny breaks the cycle in that, like, in that book, he's in the same position with the boilers uh, that his father was, and it goes a different way, right? Yes. Well, and he struggles with his alcoholism, but but overcomes it and has a chance to, uh, you know, is confronting this possibility of killing a child that he cares about and stops himself. Right. I think there's something less satisfying or redemptive about that. I mean, I think that, that that's the more realistic version is that hopefully we just don't repeat our parents' mistakes and we, we don't just, you know, take on all of their weaknesses, uh, which, 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 you know, kids, it's hard not to do that in some ways. So that there's something, uh, there's a real validity and resonance to that. But I mean, I think it, it might've been another interesting take and possibly a more satisfying take if somehow the next version, the next sequel of, of this movie, you know, had, or book had dealt with Jack Torrance's own soul, finding that redemption. That would, that would have been interesting. I think I mean my my final thought on this is that when we started this process John certainly you and I agreed that the the shining was a heavy favorite and an obvious number 1 seed and there are still just so many astonishing uh, exceptionally well crafted terrifying things in this it's it's really is an amazing movie and there's a reason that we still talk about it with the the reverence that we do uh gosh 40 years later and that the scenes like red rum like here's johnny like jack frozen in the snow like the elevators full of blood the reason that those persist in pop culture and in commercials and and all that kind of stuff it's because they're really powerful and they're really well executed and they're really scary and it's just burned its way into our our sort of collective consciousness over the last 40 years far more so than the book uh, i think the movie is the thing that that really feels immortal to me but coming out the other side of this and having had this discussion and frankly rich having had your dissenting voice in this i want to say that going into the final four this is a vulnerable film i i am going into the other three films in our loving autopsy round with a much more open mind than, well, we're just teeing up a, a lamb to the slaughter in the finals against the shining. Uh, I think there's a, there's a very real chance that this film could be toppled. It is not a perfect film. And I think there are some, some weaknesses in it. Uh, some of which feel a little glaring at this point. So I, this has been, this has been a valuable process. And I'm really curious to see how it impacts the the remainder of this tournament going forward. Any final thoughts, Rich? I will say, look, uh, my experience in watching this movie, like I, it's like I just don't, I I don't learn my lesson. Like every time I watch it, I I have the same experience where I get about halfway through it, and I'm like, this movie's better than I remember it being. Like, I know I do enjoy this. I, I do feel like, you know, like I, I see the value in it. I see why people get excited about it. And then somewhere around the three quarter mark, I'm like starting to check my watch. I'm, I just like, I feel like the, the, the characters like aren't, aren't continuing to develop. Like, I feel like I've, I've gotten everything that I really need to out of them. 
And the last like 15 to 20 minutes of the movie, despite the fact that that they're the most full of, you know, the, the horror that I came here for in the first place are just like a drag that I'm just, just clawing the walls to stay awake for. Um, you know, I've watched this movie during the day. I've watched it at night. I've watched it forwards. I've watched it backwards. It's a good movie. And I think that honestly, like all your, all your observations, like have, have deepened my appreciation for it, especially like the, this idea of like, just like following all the, the character nuance of, of Jack. But I do still feel like the, the, the filmmaking overall, like I, I stand by that evaluation. The film is feeling, feeling cold and feeling distant. And furthermore, some of the horror still really strikes me as just kind of throwing shit at the wall and seeing what sticks. And I know that that sounds crazy given everything we know about Kubrick, but let's just separate ourselves from the mythology of, of Kubrick for a moment and look at it on its own merits. And I think that there's a lot of stuff in here that you can theorize and, and extrapolate on simply because there's just not enough meat on the bones in terms of actual meaning or or explanation in the film. And don't get me wrong, I'm perfectly up for keeping a level of vagueness in your in your storytelling. I just feel like this movie does it to it to its own disadvantage sometimes. And um yeah, it's not this is not a, a damning review the film i think it has a lot of validity i think that you guys have a lot of great points just to me it's the the sum of its parts is not as great as the award that like culture has given it from my perspective well i've said enough nice things about it i'll try to play devil's advocate to the sense that to the degree that i will point out that stanley kubrick did not like horror films he did not especially appreciate or understand or study them. So I think he was out of his comfort zone here. And and maybe, just maybe, that, that could lend itself to some of the things that Rich is picking up on. Certainly the idea of throwing shit against the wall is the idea that, well... I know there are tropes. I know there's things like let's throw some skeletons in the fucking lobby. You know, that's fine. That's what, that's what this movie, um, should have. Right. But he has no passionate, uh, intention with those, those skeletons. He has no reverence for the genre. He has no impulse that, that would conjure those images. It's more that that's by rote in some way, or that's, it's either right from the novel or just kind of meeting expectations for the genre. That that's the nastiest thing I can say about this movie in a sense, other than, you know, the things I've already pointed out, but maybe, maybe there's something to that. So in any event, uh, it's been great talking about it with you guys and, uh, let's move on to the next one. Until next time, I am John Evans, and guys, it's it's been great. Say farewell in your own way. <laughs> well, there you go. There you have it. <laughs> See, I finally found a way to make it more awkward than ever before. <laughs> yes, I blame you. <laughs> um, no, this has been a, this has been a, a, a great discussion. Uh, thank you very much. I feel like I, I understand the film in a better way than I have before. This has been great. Thanks so much, guys. Have a great night. Happy 4th of July, everybody. (laughs) 
Happy New Happy- Year's. <laughs> <laughs> As, as I can only assume, it will be the 4th of July when you're listening to this. <laughs> I'm sticking with Arbor Day. I think it's Arbor Day. Arbor Day. Good one. All Adios right. all. <laughs>